Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. So tonight's talk is going to be addressing the role of attention in both psychological well-being and in spiritual practice. Uh, There are two, broadly speaking, different types of attention. The first type is narrow or focused attention. I like to use the word uh, spotlight, which is akin to the concentrated light in a, when you're watching a play that brings your focus to a specific actor or a specific dramatic element on a stage. So it guides to a very specific element and the rest of the stage generally we become less aware of. We become the spotlight will generally be on the protagonist of a play and the other characters will remain somewhat in the background with less light on them and will have far less attention on them. So spotlight attention is associated with the functioning of the left hemisphere. It is that characteristic of attention that allows us to bring our awareness to some object as opposed to an entire spatial context, but a specific object that we need or we need to pay attention to. Now, for example, birds use spotlight attention to find seeds on the ground, or they will use spotlight attention to bring a twig and to build a nest. Understanding how spotlight attention works and when it's skillful and when it can be less skillful is, I think, of great benefit for our long-term psychological well-being. The first type of spotlight attention is when we're focused on a short-term pleasurable reward. So, for instance, when we might be scrolling on Amazon to purchase something, when people are scrolling on social media or bringing their attention to their phone, hoping to get a message, an email or something. This short-term fixated attention is associated with a few different neurotransmitters. When we're shopping, engaged with social media, TV, playing a video game, This kind of spotlight reward-focused attention, it's driven more by the reward centers of the brain, meaning dopamine. Also, it chews up a lot of glutamate. It's a very edgy, impatient attention. When someone is uh, looking to find a new place to rent, they go through all these different listings on perhaps Craigslist or on uh, one of the realtor sites, and they're just scrolling. And there's this edgy fixated impatience associated with all those neurotransmitters. Unfortunately, with this type of attention, 
it burns through glutamate really quickly. And when we do that, glutamate runs out and it's replaced with adenosine. That might be a neuropeptide, but anyway, uh, which runs in the place of glutamate and keeps attention going. But it, this is far more stressful and even far unpleasant than the original edgy, impatient sort of hunting for something. So any kind of endeavor that where we find ourselves leaning in, the body is tense, the mind is uh, focusing on something that, uh, to, that we feel that we need to get a reward is associated with this kind of spotlight attention. Another is default mode processing. Default mode processing is when we're not stimulated by our environment and our attention slips away from the external world and starts focusing on internal uh, self-referential inner chatter. In other words, we start thinking about ourselves: what's going to happen to us in the future, what happened to us in the past. And over time, these types of thoughts inevitably become stressful because one, <clears throat> These are so this type of spotlight attention is associated with ventral medial processing. It can activate the amygdala, the fear uh, sort of processing region or, or the alert processing region of the brain as well. Um, it's a famous study by two psychologists at Harvard University by the names of Killingsworth and Gilbert did a wonderful study probably around um, at least 10 years ago called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. It's one of the most uh, profound clinical studies in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. What they did was they created a, a, a cell phone app. It was very simple that would indiscriminately at different times randomly uh, ring and people would have to answer three questions. Um, were they happy or not? What were they doing? And were they paying attention to what they were doing? That was the three questions. And what the study found was that 50% of the time we're not paying attention to what we're doing externally. We're instead lost in wandering thought. But even more profound than that was that 50% of the time is when we're most unhappy in our life. When we allow our, th our thoughts to wander to uh, essentially default mode operation, which is we start thinking thoughts about ourselves and others and what has happened in the past or what might happen in the future. Ventral medial thinking is associated with act activation of the hypothalamus, which then uh, triggers the adrenal glands to release cortisol. It's damaging over time. It causes stress disorders. It can cause diabetes. It, can, it compromises immune function. It's uh, physiologically a disaster. And the Buddha, as we'll talk about, was very, 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 very 
concerned about wandering thought because he knew that it invariably wound up turning into what he called pancha obsession and self-referential sakayaditi uh, um, type thinking and atava upadana. Um, but there's a third kind of spotlight attention which is very skillful. It's not focused on short-term rewards, rewards, whether people's porn addiction, shopping addiction, uh, uh, social media addictions or whatever. It's not being lost in our internal, focusing on our internal thoughts, unaware of the world around us. The third kind of spotlight attention is task positive. When we're in task positive, we're not in default mode. We're not thinking about ourselves. We're not essentially lost in the clouds of thought, nor are we fixated on a short-term reward. Task positive thinking is top-down. It's not driven by bottom-up or ventral. It's actually lateral top-down processing. And it's extremely beneficial, as we'll talk about, it's uh, cholinergic, and it involves both right and left hemispheric processing. And we'll talk about why this kind of spotlight attention was, for the Buddha, the most important kind of way to use our minds, and why it's so associated with lasting happiness. So spotlight attention is largely conscious, we're ten we generally tend to think and be aware of that which we're focusing our attention on, and it determines what we think about, and it in many ways um, has lasting impact on our uh, cognitive and emotional well-being. But there's another type of attention entirely which we haven't spoken about up until now, it's associated more with right brain functioning, and it's called floodlight or contextual or broad, broad, open, spatial background attention. This kind of attention is generally unconscious, and generally it is uh, run by the right uh, midbrain especially right amygdala, hypothalamus, and temporal lobes, and stuff like that. This kind of broad awareness generally works in the background. So, for example, when we walk into a party for an instant, we might be broadly aware of the entire gestalt of the party, but very quickly, the left brain and spotlight attention will take over and we'll pay attention to where's the food table or some of us might pay attention to where's the drink table or some of us might be suddenly paying attention to where's the most attractive person in the room or others might be oops there's my ex walking around i'm just gonna focus attention on that so very quickly in most of life settings there's a brief cognition where we're aware of floodlight attention, the entire gestalt, like if you suddenly walk into, uh, you know, I don't know, a large new uh, area or work or environment, you first become aware of the environment, but then very quickly, your thinking and, and conscious mind, left hemispheric, will grab hold of your, your attention and spotlight it on one thing or another. 
floodlight attention when it's um, left in the background is largely relegated to what Miguel Christ and other uh, neuropsychologists talk about uh, looking for threats. So while the bird uses its left hemisphere, its left brain, to spotlight attention on seeds or building or finding twigs to build a nest, in the background, unconsciously, largely, the right hemisphere of the bird is scanning the environment for cats or for predators or for other uh, situations that might in some way impact its survival. And in life, when the floodlight attention becomes aware of a threat, what it can do is the cingulate can override what we're paying attention to and shift our attention to something else. So if you're walking in on a hike and you're taking in uh, the beauty of the day or you're lost in thought about what you're going to eat later for dinner and then suddenly there's a crackle sound and your attention is brought to that specific area that's your right hemisphere overriding your left and basically saying hook let's go over here the right brain is associated with withdrawal security concerns interconnection it uh and it has a a capability of overriding whatever we want to focus attention on and bring our attention to something entirely different. So when we are unconsciously insecure, something has triggered a memory of a painful event in life or where we are processing a emotional wound, we will very often have jumpy attention because the right hemisphere will constantly interrupt the functioning of the left brain, which wants to focus on rewards or focus on, you know, thoughts about ourself. But sometimes the brain will become hypervigilant. This explains two of the of, 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 uh, or, uh, concerns that people very often want to discuss with me in my counseling work, so many uh, different concerns, but people very often are interested in procrastination and distraction. What causes procrastination? What causes distraction? And unfortunately, many people just assume that procrastination is some form of laziness, that if we don't uh, get, in quotes, our act together and uh, focus our energies on putting together a resume or studying for an exam or writing uh, something we have to write or uh, doing something that it's because we don't have enough willpower or that we're too easily bored or that we in some way have ADHD or something of the sort. And very, very often, actually, the underlying root of procrastination is distraction is that the right hemisphere is uh, essentially not happy with what we are paying attention to. It doesn't want to have anything to do with it and thus has the ability to override the left hemisphere's focus and will bring attention to something else. So, for example, 
Um, you, somebody who wants to get a new job because they are bored in their job or they just don't feel fulfilled, which is fine. They, they set themselves a task to uh, apply for other jobs. But every time they sit down to work on their resume or to write a introductory letter, they get distracted or they procrastinate. They wind up uh, focusing on social media or something else. Does this mean this is a lazy person or someone who doesn't have willpower? No. What it simply means is that the right hemisphere the security-oriented part of the brain doesn't like the idea of changing jobs. It finds the idea of applying for a job threatening. It finds the endeavor uh, as associated with something that is not secure for the right hemisphere. It, it might The right hemisphere might prefer staying in the known and the familiar. In fact, that's almost invariably what the right hemisphere prefers is to stay in shelter and not change and not uh, put ourselves out there and take risks unless it feels very, very, very confident that we'll be okay. To override the right brain's fear of change and uh, taking risks, the left brain developed dopamine and very often it requires short-term re rewards to override our innate fear, our innate conservative natures, our innate tendencies to avoid change or uh, anything that is associated with the unknown. So the procrastination and distraction are actually not synonymous in any way with a lack of effort or a laziness at all. What they are associated with is that an unconscious region of the brain which governs and can shift our attention uh, is unhappy with a choice that we're making. And this is the way the right hemisphere makes its needs known, by pulling attention away from that which it doesn't like and pulling attention towards something else, sometimes towards a fast short-term reward or sometimes towards an anxiety-producing topic. Um, right hemisphere is also primed by, as we, we know, by evolution to constantly pull attention to threats and to sense of personal deficits. And this made sense over the course of evolution. It made sense that through much of human evolution, uh, if everybody else in the clan had, a, had a, an axe, but me, <laughs> it made sense that I would walk around constantly being aware that everyone else had an axe because it would encourage me to finally go about building or procuring an axe for myself. And if every, you know, so the right hemisphere has the ability to pull our attention to anything that sets us apart that makes us feel less than or uh, in some way not as prepared or not as tribally secure as other people around. So, for example, uh, 
the right brain can pull our attention away from perfectly good tasks towards focusing on anything that we feel is missing in our life. When I was losing my hair in my 30s, every guy I would see seemed to have a full head, a full head of hair. I mean, literally, there was no other bald man in the universe because my right hemisphere was perceived, oh, I'm going bald. No one's going to like me anymore. It's associated with a deficit. And it then brought my attention always towards people who had a full head of hair. Uh, many people, for example, if they feel they're missing out on a child, suddenly they'll walk outside and everybody will have a child. If you move into a neighborhood and you feel a sense of financial insecurity, all your right hemisphere will do is orient your attention towards people that have disposable wealth who are shopping and spending money. If we feel ourselves miss not having a car, our right hemisphere, which is again all about survival, will think, well, I'm going to just bring our attention to everybody who has a nice car out there. And that's why we're constantly, our uh, attention is subject to being distracted or pulled away to any topic that seems, even in the most remote way, to have an impact on our survival. Lack of top-down control over focus, which has to be de developed over practice. In America, when people have lack of top-down control, we try to medicate it away. And we, of course, uh, diagnose people with ADHD, and they are treated with D amphetamines, which such as Adderall and Ritalin, which increase the D3 transmission of dopamine. But what it does is it also uh, activates the downstream transmission of acetylcholine in other and lower uh, bottom up regions of the brain. Um, long term use to try to build up attention, long term use of. Uh, D-amphetamines is invariably associated with not only sleep abnormalities, but depression, mood swings, mania and paranoia and paranoid attacks, because over time, the brain becomes dependent upon the do dopamine activation of these amphetamines. And over time, the brain can't regulate dopamine well on its own. But we can develop top-down attention through practice. One of the keys of developing top-down attention, which is essentially requires acetylcholine, is that we simply have to wire the brain over ton, time and time and time of practice so that we have exonic control over the lower regions of the brain and we can override distractions, especially those triggered by the right hemisphere. The most healthy state of attention is what's known, as I said previously, as task positive. This is an attention that's neither hypervigilant, it doesn't, it's not constantly looking around for threats, nor is it scattered. It's immersed in something without any short-term reward. 
it develops a sense of interest and mastery uh, and it's it is essentially associated with what Chaheli Mahi, the great uh, 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 positive psychologist, called states of flow. States of flow, task positive, when we are the happiest in life, when we are using lateral regions of the brain, are associated with, uh, uh, one, the very long-term gradual slow release of dopamine so it's pleasurable but it's not as pleasurable as shopping or binge eating or uh social media apps or whatever it's a very it's a very immersed focused attention that takes time to develop it takes patience to develop it's an attention that can fluidly move between spotlight and focus because if you're focused on something gardening pottery drawing playing a musical instrument um uh sewing embroidery uh uh i, I don't know if anybody still woodworks but that people who work intently on engines for long periods of time. Task positive behavior is associated with immersing one's attention on something that gives an immediate feedback in terms of how, you know, the changes. It, it very often will either in, re require use of our hands or it will require on some kind of attention to the subtle changes that are going on. So this is the healthiest form of attention in terms of our long-term well-being, in terms of our happiness, in terms of allowing the mind to uh, move into older age uh, with, less, um, with less vulnerabilities to dementia and Alzheimer's. It's uh, the form of attention that is associated with a use of neurotransmitters that doesn't cause cognitive overload, that doesn't produce the release of cortisol or adenosine, stress hormones. It is the attention that over time produces the greatest degree of happiness, although the happiness is on a very medium level, not the short-term pleasure rewards of the sort of... Um, the shopping, eating kind of stuff. For the Buddha, the Buddha noted that how we use our attention, how we focus our attention is of the most profound uh, influence over our peace of mind. Um, the Buddha said, when we focus attention on something that's agreeable, fasa, when it lands on something, if it's agreeable, It'll create pleasant sensations or pleasant feelings, which will create then a craving for more. And then it'll create clinging and suffering and stress. This is the Paticca Samapada. On the other hand, the results are very similar as if we focus on all the time on threats, which is uh, it'll create unpleasant feelings, dukkha vedana, and then craving for something pleasant to replace it, a distraction. And that will create more clinging and more suffering. So for the solution was for the Buddha neither to pay attention to 
things that bring short-term rewards, nor constant threat vigilance, but in fact to practice maintaining attention, which he called a kagata, on neutral objects, neutral endeavors, which over, turn, over time train the mind to develop top-down attention. This is uh, essentially why meditation is so important in the Buddha's spiritual path. When we, be, we develop the skill of concentrating attention on something that does not trigger the release of huge amounts of dopamine or glutamates or adrenaline or epinephrine like short-term rewards do, nor paying attention just to worrying thoughts or or constantly looking for bad news, scrolling, doom scrolling on sites. But when we instead sustain our attention on a neutral endeavor, such as paying attention to the breath, such as paying attention to sounds, such as paying attention to body sensations, such as paying attention to very simple chants that we, we repeat in the mind, over time, this uh, simply is sustained by acetylcholine. It develops over time axonic wiring that gives us the capability of overriding distractions. It also shrinks the size of the amygdala, making us less vulnerable to ongoing feelings of vulnerability and insecurity. And over time, it still does release just enough dopamine that we don't run out of our dopamine resources. We don't run out of glutamate. They're sustained and continuously going. So when, as the great philosopher Heidegger said, when you really care about something, when we're being in the world where we're focused our attention on something that is an endeavor where we feel a sense of mastery and ongoing involvement, but that doesn't offer a quick-term reward that we're trying to get to, where we're engaged in the journey, not the destination. When we're, you know, nobody gardens with the idea of, I can't wait to get to the end of gardening because I'm going to get this huge payoff. Nobody, you know, sews with the or embroiders with the sense of I can't wait until I get to the end of embroidering and then I'll, you know, people do these task positive endeavors because it quiets default mode operation. You can't do both. You can't be task positive and have default mode. When you're in task positive, you're focused on an ongoing sensation, not on thoughts about self. So it doesn't produce stress hormones. And at the same time, you are training the mind to be able to override the, the fears and, the, and the, the outdated survival concerns, which were primed by evolution, but are no longer necessary of the right hemisphere. Finally, lastly, there are three ways that the Buddha wanted us to, or suggested practicing, or actually there's more, but a bunch of ways that the Buddha suggested developing our attentional skills. On one level, the Buddha said before even meditation practice, 
in the Eightfold Factor known as right effort, all of life is a meditation for the Buddha in that we are constantly in life presented with a choice. Do I focus my attention on something that is present and is uh, right here and is something that I can address right now? Or we, do we allow our thoughts to wander into stressful th future-oriented thoughts about self? Or do we allow ourselves, our attention to be captured by short-term pleasures? The Buddha noted that right effort was constantly keeping in mind that which was skillful, kusala karma, and that in turn leads to right concentration, which is sustaining awareness on something that's skillful, and over time for the Buddha that produced a state of bliss, which Chaheli Mahi called flow. But there's also another form of uh, attention, which was atamiyata, which was to bring floodlight or open, spacious, broad attention that didn't pay attention to anything into consciousness. And when we did, it becomes less associated, broad attention becomes less associated with right hemispheric threat detection and security concerns. And it becomes more aware of just taking in the gestalt of a situation. And over time, we can use floodlight attention to achieve also, the Buddha said, a great sense of release. And one of um, the uh, suttas, there's a remarkable talk where the Buddha says he lives in unfocused, global, spacious attention. So both being able to practice sustained concentration on something that is ongoing but is not associated with an immediate pleasure reward, or being able to bring unconscious, global, spacious attention to the forefront of the mind and associate it with a sense of pleasure uh, that is long-lasting are the two primary approaches to train attention. And so that's what we'll be doing in tonight's meditation. We'll be practicing how to train attention so that we live in minds that are happier and are more uh, productive with a greater sense of well-being in the future. So, thank you for listening. I hope, as always, that tonight's talk brought some useful information and some useful tools or insights, and that in the future uh, you'll continue to drop by. So let's find a really comfortable seated position. And while you're doing so, if you'd uh, like to sustain my efforts as a Buddhist pastor in some small way, uh, the Venmo is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, punks, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C, or the pay 
uh, PayPal is um, on the website where the podcast is. So thanks for that. And now let's close our eyes. If you don't like to close your eyes, just what we're going to do is first remove our attention from any of the distractions around us. If you do prefer to keep your eyes open, uh, one thing you can do is find a neutral object in your environment, not associated in any way with threat or with pleasure. So not a TV set or a phone or a laptop, nor anything associated with stress or vulnerability, but just find something that is still some people use a candle flame. Some people use a burning incense. Some people might use a stationary object like a ball of string. Something that's not associated with short-term rewards nor threats. If you bring your, if you close your eyes and bring your attention internally, we're not going to focus our spotlight attention on thoughts about ourselves or about anything in the future. That's default mode, and that's when we're least happy. The study shows we're least happy when we're lost in thought about ourselves. So we're going to focus attention instead on the breath and the body, or we're going to focus attention on the random body sensations arising and passing. You could view your entire body as a constellation of stars, instead comprised of sensations of tightness, release, liquidity, uh, slight feelings of pain or pleasure, slight sensations of movement in the body, sensations of clenching, and just pay attention to the internal sensations. If that's difficult, you can with your eyes closed, just listen to the sounds in your environment arising and passing without focusing attention on pleasurable sounds or without focusing attention on unpleasurable. Just allow background sounds to arise and pass without any clinging or resistance. Classic mindfulness of sounds. And so for the practice of developing skillful top-down attention that over time shrinks the gray matter and the amygdala, that is of endless benefit for both our well-being and our ability to focus on skillful endeavors in the rest of our life to train our minds to be skillful throughout the course of our life. Just choose an anchor for your awareness. Again, it could be the breath, 
the sensations perhaps in the belly or the chest of the inhalation and exhalation, or it could be the sounds arising and passing, or it could be other body sensations, or if you prefer just a simple phrase, I love you, keep going, repeated with each inhalation or exhalation. Just sustain your attention on this. And when your right hemisphere starts to grab hold and pull it away, or you lose awareness of the skillful object, just practice overriding this tendency developing our top-down capabilities of slowly releasing the acetylcholine and the, over time the pleasurable dopamine very, very, very just relaxing upon your anchor, bringing your attention back again and again without any frustration not adding any thoughts about yourself when your mind slips away. And just keep returning again and associate this concentration practice with joy because that's what it'll bring over time. So each time you return to the present, you wake up from the daydream of a thought or the distraction of something else, just give yourself a smile, an acknowledgement. And so we'll just sit here for a while and quiet and just practice this kind of skillful mental exercise.
So for the second practice, we're going to just develop a, a more broad floodlight attention. We're going to bring this function to the foreground of consciousness. And we're going to reassign it from detecting threats to just maintaining a neutral, soft, pleasant awareness. Uh, the Buddha called Atamiyata. So maintaining in your awareness whatever your anchor was previously, whether it was the breath or body sensations or sounds. Now what I'd like you to do is while you hold awareness of this anchor, I'd like you to also or invite you to bring into your awareness feelings that are arising in the front of the body. When pleasant things are happening, the body relaxes, muscles release, the shoulders drop, the belly softens, the throat opens, and there's a longing, a long, longer exhalations. On the other hand, when something unpleasant is happening, the muscles in the front of the body tense, the stomach becomes contracted, the shoulders tighten and lift up towards the ears, the throat feels tight, and we begin to emphasize more inhalations. So just become aware of how every moment feelings states are arising and passing, kind of reviews the right brain and midbrain are giving for each moment in time, tensing or releasing. So now we're aware of either sounds or the breath, but also just all the different feelings that are happening largely in the front of the body also including any shift in the cranial muscles in the face. Does the jaw release or get tighter? Do the micro muscles around the eyes become tense or softer? And now, while we're aware of both, perhaps, the breath and feelings, if you haven't been using sound, also bring in awareness of sound. So while you're aware of what feelings are going on in your body, while you're aware of the whether you're breathing in or breathing out. Also have a sense of the sounds that surround. Releasing now any tendency to focus on any specific part of our awareness or constituent of the present and instead creating a broader, more spacious, open attention that can hold all the different multivaried 
sensory impressions and internal states. Broadening awareness now so that it no longer feels trapped in the head. So your awareness spreads in all directions, the left, the right, up and down, knowing that everything you can hear is inside the mind, is inside of your awareness. So your awareness is not limited to the size of your head. Removing any sense of being trapped in a body, allowing conscious awareness to expand in all directions, holding now every or capable of awareness of all the various sensations comprising this moment in time, sensations of the body. thoughts now that might be passing through, but not focusing attention on them, just aware that we have a body, aware that we have thoughts and moods. The mind might be settled or jumpy. Aware of the sounds, the aromas, the the sense of lightness or heaviness of being in this moment, not allowing your awareness to collapse on anything, and just when the moment feels right, just remove any effort and just allow your awareness to be open, broad, spacious, refusing to allow it to contract around any specific element or part of this moment in time, just allowing it to be as open as broad as when you first walk into an open field after a long journey through a thicket of woods and you finally open up to a broad sunlit field and everything in this moment is part of the experience.
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and just without in any way yanking your attention back to the screen, laptop, or however you've connected, just keep your awareness open, but your eyes now can see the world. So it's just one more part of this open, spacious, inclusive attention.